Now, I think one of the best um, compliments I've ever been given was by Ernan. I am the efficient cause to Eileen's final cause. Um, and it kind of like gave me tingles, you know. Um, I think most of us who've known Eileen for very long have a crush on her. And so, I don't know, it was especially um, moving to me, so to speak. Uh, and, and I don't know about you, but I've never heard the final cause speak. And so I'm actually really looking forward to this. Um, I've been waiting for this in a way for a very long time. Now, when Eileen was an undergraduate here at Barnard, she was inspired and supported, uh, supported significantly by the heavy-hitting women in the philosophy department here, Mary Mothersill and, of course, Sue Lorison. Now, at the same time, my predecessors across the street, the guys in the philosophy department over there, um, who were apparently really impressed by her, but they still referred to her. I don't think they ever apparently knew her name. They referred to her as that smart blonde from Barnard. Um, this is actually, I get this from Eileen, by the way. Now, that smart blonde from Barnard went on to Princeton and made a name for herself, as everyone here knows, as a scholar, first of Descartes, and then of 17th century philosophy more generally. And then, of course, she became an expert um, on early modern women philosophers. Now, we've heard a lot about Eileen's work in that way, and so I don't feel that it's, my, it's appropriate to try to review that. In fact, I think, like, enough about Eileen. Uh, let's talk about us for a little while. <laughs> now, I'm struck by how, what many of you said and the extent to which people agree on why they're here and what's important about their, their being here and the effect that we've had, our lives have, the ways in which our lives have been affected by Eileen. Yesterday, Alice, for example, noted that Eileen's work made the study of women philosophers respectable, while according to Marguerite, Eileen showed her that it was possible to do philosophy and feminism at the same time. According to Sarah, for example, Eileen has helped us remap philosophy's history. And for example, Karen um, noted the extraordinary inspiration that Eileen had had in her life, and I think that's true in many of us, for many of us. Now, this is really high praise. Um, and I think, you know, again, I think most of us would embrace this praise. But now, why have we been so impressed and so affected by Eileen and her work? Now, first, there's the sheer weight of the scholarly achievement. For, for, for all of those women whose writing have, have just been lost, whose ink has disappeared, the struggle of finding the books and sorting through hundreds and hundreds of pages of early modern French, early modern Latin, and so on, that's itself enormously impressive. In fact, I loved Alison Simmons' story about watching, you know, look, seeing Eileen carry around this stack of papers, right? Um, no wonder she's so buff, Eileen. She, she's been carrying around these heavy books for years. Um, now, however hard it may be to work through the arguments of Kant or read a few unpublished papers by Leibniz, this is nothing compared to hours spent sorting through microfilms in dark rooms and books in old libraries, investigating references and tracking down obscure leads. Eileen has been her own sort of um, CSI, scholarly division. <laughs> now second, there's the philosophical seriousness. It's one thing to identify the books worth considering. 
It's another thing to articulate the views and unfamiliar materials, identify the major arguments, and see how the system works. It's the clarity and subtlety of Eileen's analyses that, have made this, that, ha, that has made her work so important, to use Alice's word, so respectable. I also think that Lisa put it really well. I think that something about Eileen's, the seriousness of her work, um, has made sense of the text so we could just jump in. You know, she did that hard philosophical work so we could just jump in. Now, finally, there's the generosity and the, what I would call the quiet passion. As Marcy suggested, for everyone who, sh who showed any, even a, an inkling of interest on, women, on a woman philosopher, Eileen was there to encourage, conjole, and nudge. She sent us articles, she sent us texts, she sent us citations, or as John Conley um, noted, you know, she was there with her kind of shoebox full of three-by-five cards. Before you knew it, you were, you were adding women to your courses and including them in your research. So in general terms, I'd say, Eileen has shown us a doorway through which we might escape the categories of the standard narrative about the history of philosophy. And she helped explain why that door, door has been closed to us for so long, why those women, our predecessors, have been lost to us for such a long time. She opened the door, and so we can just waltz right in. In short, Eileen's scholarly tenacity, intellectual courage, philosophical acumen, and personal grace have allowed us to see the landscape of early modern philosophy differently and to muster the courage to explore it more fully. I was very struck by the notion of courage. This has come up a couple of times today. We've seen Eileen be courageous and just say, let us do it and let us do it well. Now, as a final remark, I want to say something about this combination of philosophical tenacity and intellectual grace. Um, again, I was struck by Marinella's uh, I, the idea that we found, we heard about in Marinella's text about the relationship between beauty, virtue, and grace. There's something almost magical about Eileen's commitment and enthusiasm in the way it's infected us. How can we account for this? Now, for a bit of help, I want to turn very, very briefly to Virginia Woolf, who could herself, of course, be richly philosophical. Now, I have to confess, this doesn't really quite have a philosophical point, but you know, I don't care. Um, when, I, when I read this the other week or month or whatever it is, I was so struck by, by I love this passage, but I also was struck by, I just decided I had to fit it in somehow. So, you know, here it is. Into the lighthouse, Lily Briscoe is struck, now notice the language here, it's so beautiful, I quote, by the old qu question which took traverse the sky of the soul perpetually, the vast, the general question, what is the meaning of life? A question that tended to close in on one with years. The great revelation had not come. The great revelation perhaps never did come. Instead, there were daily miracles, illuminations, matches struck unexpectedly in the dark. Here was one. In the midst of chaos, there was shape. This eternal passing and flowing was struck into momentary stability. I want to suggest that Eileen has helped us find a stability in the midst of our chaotic academic lives. She has helped us illuminate the shape of our feminist commitments, 
and helped us find these little miracles of scholarly insights and endeavors. Now, in the last line, in the last lines of the novel, Lily finishes a painting that she's been working on for years. This is, these are the last lines. She looked at her canvas. It was blurred with a sudden intensity, as if she saw it clear for a second. She drew a line there, in the center. It was done. It was finished. Yes, she thought, laying down her brush in extreme fatigue, I have had my vision. I think Eileen has helped us see the importance of women philosophers, the intense pleasure in studying them, and in the rightness of doing that work. She has helped us find, if only for a brief Wolfian second, our own vision. Now, um, I give you the final cause, and that smart and very accomplished blonde from Barnard. Well, I had this very, very short um, little speech prepared because it, the hour is very late and I want to do a very quick closing. And suddenly I'm feeling a little overwhelmed, so you're going to have to give me a little moment here. And before I sort of get to it, I just have to thank everybody who's in the audience today, some the people who are, have, have had to leave, um, but I, my thanks goes out to them who were here yesterday, who've been part of it. Um, it's just an extraordinary thing, as you could well imagine. There's sort of nothing better than to have your childhood friends that you've known since you were six, to have um, your students who have come down from UMass, to have your colleagues, to have those people in your own field, so many of them, the people that I absolutely most respect in the whole world, in my field. and some of the people who are now these great scholars in the field who were junior people when I first knew them or graduate students when I first knew them. Um, and to have all of you people do the celebration, it's just so overwhelming, I just have to really say. Um, but, you know, as Christia actually did wisely mention last night at dinner, really this conference, although you're celebrating me, isn't really about me. It's really about us, and I think everybody in this room knows that. And when Karen Green, who just had to leave to go all the way back to Australia, where she came just for this conference, um, I said to her, you know, it's so funny, Karen, because I just recently wrote a letter on your behalf in which I had to review your work. And I said, there are many of us, and many of you are all in the room today, there are many of us who have worked for the past 20 years or so on the recovery and evaluation of women's contribution to the history of philosophy. And in that document I said, but perhaps no one of us has done more for this cause than Karen Green. So Karen Green and many of the other people who are in this room so easily um, should and can, could be the speaker up here right now for amazing reasons. I mean, I'm going to take it because <laughs> it landed on my head. But I thank, I thank every one of you so very much. So now I'm going to just read something because time is short and I want to just make these little points. So 
In my proper speech, I was going to say, first allow me to thank once again all of the individuals and the departments and the institutions whom Christia and others um, have mentioned, and especially Barnard College and the Barnard Center for Research on Women. I thank you so very, very much for your generous help in funding um, this conference and in organizing the conference, um, and for your enthusiastic support of the study of the history of women philosophers. I want to give a very special thanks, as we all have, but I think we can't do it enough, and I think we should all give her a big hand. Christia Mercer, one more time. Um, Ernan has called her the efficient cause. I wasn't far off, Ernan. I have down here the moving force. It's a close translation. <laughs> Behind the conference, and also to Lisa Shapiro and Karen Detlefson, who are, of course, so humble and say they did nothing, but they did lots, and I saw a lot of little notes that went back and forth between Christia and the two of them, who worked with Christia in envisioning and planning this conference. And finally, I want to take the opportunity to express publicly my debt of gratitude to Barnard College, not only for their part in this conference, but also for affording me the privilege of studying in my undergraduate years with some really outstanding philosophers. They were my mentors and they were my role models, and under their guidance, I developed a passion for the history of early modern philosophy especially the history of metaphysics, the metaphysics of causation especially. The late Mary Mothersill introduced me to the history of ethics. Sue Larson got me hooked on the history of metaphysics and Hume on causation. With Lee Kalman, who was the former managing editor of the Journal of Philosophy, I studied the empiricists. And with Honora O'Neill, I studied the rationalists and Kant. Boy, you can't get better than that list. It was pretty amazing. Without the influence of these remarkable women, I am really not at all sure that I would have engaged in, quote, the path of long study, which is a phrase I borrow from Christine de Pizan, which eventuated in my lifelong project of trying to reconstruct as accurately as I can 17th and 18th century metaphysics, in part by tracing interconnections between philosophy theology, science, politics, and the literature of that period. Over the course of the past day and a half, we've heard two important new papers on the early modern philosopher Mary Estelle, one contrasting her views on Locke on knowledge by reason, and on the other hand, beliefs of faith concerning metaphysics and morals, the other on her cosmological argument for God's existence and her metaphysics of the divine nature. We've been presented with exciting new studies of the political um, philosophy and the philosophy of gender of late Italian Renaissance writer Lucrezia Marinella, the Cartesian Francois Poulain de la Barre, and the Enlightenment figure Catherine Macaulay. The influence of er earlier philosophical traditions on the work of early modern women philosophers um, were traced in papers that discussed how Aristotle and Platonist views helped to shape the philosophy of Marinella and Damaris Masham. And we heard a paper 
on external beauty and inward excellence in early modern women writers, and another on the treatments of freedom in Cavendish's plays and natural philosophy. In sum, we've been presented with in-depth studies of the views of some women philosophers, historical overviews of philosophical influence on women philosophers' texts, and the influence that these texts have had on subsequent philosophy, and examinations of the way that women philosophers' views and the genres in which they were expressed may challenge standard positions about the canon in early modern philosophy. And finally, we participated in two sets of very stimulating discussions that were related to this topic of philosophical canon, one devoted to teaching the texts of women philosophers and other non-canonical figures, and the other on methodology in constructing the history of early modern philosophy. And I am absolutely confident that those present today, along with others who are unable to make it here, are going to continue these conversations and pursue their themes in their scholarship and research. At this point, at the end of two days of all of this fresh, original material on women philosophers and thought-provoking discussions about methodology and pedagogy, the time, well, I was going to say the time is growing late, but now it's really late. <laughs> so my closing remarks are very, very brief, and I only want to say something about the relation between our project of recovering and evaluating the philosophical writings of women philosophers to that of Christine de Pizan, who's been mentioned many times over the course of the past few days, and her book, The Book of the City of Ladies. And if you take a look at your brochure, you will see on the very last page, the opening has a close-up of Christine, and the very last image is from the illuminated, an illuminated manuscript of that text. If you look at the page, you'll find uh, two images. One, a woman, a picture of a woman studying with some other women in her study. No doubt this is Christine, and I'll say more about the other women. And the other uh, is a picture, is a, is a portrait of Christine building the walls of the city of ladies with the help of the allegorical figure Justice. To make clear the relation that I'm going to try to trace here very briefly between our project in history of philosophy to Christine City, I want to recap, many of you are familiar, but for others who aren't, to recap some of the major themes from Christine's text, at least as I unpack its allegorical significance. So the narrative of this book of the City of Ladies begins with Christine in a state of despair about the depictions in the standard accounts of her time of women as naturally lacking in moral virtue, as unfit for intellectual endeavors, and as incapable of the prudence and the skills and practical reasoning that are needed for any measure of political authority. Christine then has a vision in which three allegorical figures appear to her. Lady Reason, who you'll see carries a mirror which symbolizes an objective picture of the world and of the self. Lady Rectitude, who carries a ruler symbolizing a standard by which truth and goodness can be measured. And Lady Justice, who carries a measuring vessel, which symbolizes the allocation of retribution and reward according to each person's deserts. Lady Reason suggests to Christine the idea of building a city of ladies. 
the city is at once a logical space in which women can think and write and make moral and political decisions without fear or apology and with pride in their abilities. It's also a call for and a contribution to a written tradition about the nature of women, including pro-women counter-arguments to the standard misogynist accounts. And finally, and this is my uh, main interest in it today, the city stands for a revisionist history of Western thought, a history of the women who have been left out of the standard picture of Western culture. The ground for the city has to be cleared of the debris, and the debris is the fallacious arguments about women's capacities and accomplishments. Lady Reason helps Christine to build the foundations of the city on this cleared land by refuting the fallacious arguments even of some of the great philosophical authorities and by replacing them with sound arguments. Ladies rectitude and justice help Christine to build the high walls of the cities and the moats that will protect it, as well as the palaces and the temples within the walls, and they help to select the inhabitants of the city. Each stone in the wall and in the buildings um, comprises or represents a history of women's important intellectual, moral, and political contributions to Western culture, drawn from classical, biblical sources, as well as contemporary events in European thought. We can see, then, that the project that we're engaged in, the revision of the history of philosophy, to include those women who did make significant contributions to the discipline, has a type of foreshadowing as early as Christine's 15th century attempt to include women's intellectual achievements in a new history. There are, however, I think, significant differences between Christine's approach to history and that of all of the participants, um, at least the speakers, I should say. I'm not sure about all the pan panel panelists, but, but all the, all the um, speakers in the conference, and I'm going to mention only one such difference since this bears upon the topic of historiography, historiographical methodology, which has been a theme of the conference. Christine's methodology starts with specific concerns and views of her own epic. She's wondering about the plight of women in her time, and she's trying to counter the particular misogynist arguments, especially in um, the Romance of the Rose. On this model of historiography, um, what, what she's attempting to do is to reconstruct a history that leads up to, helps to explain um, shows how history has given rise to the particular situation she's in at that moment. So on this model of historiography, there will turn out to be as many histories of philosophy to be written as there are current philosophical positions in her epic. Given this historiographical model, as Richard Rorty in the essay that a few people have noted about four genres of, in, in the history of philosophy, Rorty says, we should be at liberty to seek out our own intellectual ancestors without reference to a previously established canon of great dead philosophers. We should feel free to pick out whatever bits of the past we like and to call those the history of philosophy without reference to anything anybody has previously called philosophy. 
Now, it seems to me that those who gave papers, and at least some of the panelists, some of the panelists, um, uh, have utilized this, um, uh, uh, those who have participated in the conference have not utilized this type of model. They've used a different historiographical model. Um, and this, 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 this anti-Rordian, this non-Rordian and anti-Christine model is one that, in fact, um, attempts to describe the thought of past philosophers in their own terms, at least to the extent that this is possible. And Dan Garber has talked a great deal about this. This is a kind of model that aims at making intelligible the presuppositions and the patterns of reasoning that the past philosophers used, even if we now take these presuppositions and arguments to be problematic. This type of historiography hopes to be able to avoid some of the very large-scale distortions to the past um, philosophers' views that can occur by using, say, Christine's method, which takes as its point of departure one's own contemporary interests in the present and starting from there looking back. But despite these methodological differences between many of those who spoke at the conference and many in the room and Christine, nonetheless, our project, which I think should be open to diversity of methodological viewpoints, shares with Christine a dedication to retrieving the work of women thinkers of the past and evaluating, and we might have then different, given our different methodologies, different standards of evaluation, but the project is to retrieve the work and to evaluate the work for its merit in inclusion in the writing of a revised history of Western thought. I want to turn for a moment to a very personal story concerning the project of constructing a history of women's contribution to philosophy. It's a story that will lead back to Christine and her city of ladies. In December of 2003, at the University of Florida at Gainesville, uh, they hosted a conference on early modern women philosophers that was organized by Dan Kaufman. And many of the people in this room participated in that conference. I want to share with those who were not present at that conference a discussion that we had in the breakfast room the morning after the conference before we all flew off to our various destinations. I don't recall how that conversation began, and maybe some folks will fill me in on that. The notes that I jotted down in the plane on the back of an envelope began with what we called the collective dream that we had that morning. We called it the City of Women Philosophers. We began to imagine in great detail, as you'll see, an institute for the study of the history of, uh, of women philosophers. And as far as I can detect from my notes, what we envisioned was a building with a large library filled with donated first editions of texts by women philosophers of the past, enhanced by online, microfilmed, and otherwise duplicated versions of the women philosophers' written productions. We discussed the enormous value that such a center would be to dissertation students and junior scholars with research interests in the history of women philosophers. We dreamed of institute fellowships to which these younger scholars could apply. Here, in one place, they could find all of the resources that they needed to pursue their projects. 
and they could encounter other scholars working in this rich new area of inquiry in the history of philosophy. My notes, brief as they were, attest to the fact that our collective dream was highly visual. We imagined a little bit of green outside the institute, a little herb garden, and a place where fellows could sit beneath a tree to continue their conversations, a loyal dog to befriend us, (laughs) and to guard the property, and of course, a cat. Wasn't it Apollinaire who had said that in his home he wanted a woman of reason, a cat moving among the books, and friends in every season without whom he could not live? Well, we had similar thoughts. My notes end uh, with echoes of Virginia Woolf. It just says, a room always waiting. We imagined that there might be a couple of rooms in this little house which could be booked in advance. If a scholar wished to secure a room of her own for a few days or weeks or months on her own research money, or if two scholars with a project wanted to meet together with access to the uh, Institute's library resources, there would always be some rooms to facilitate further progress on the history of women philosophers. It was, as they say, un beau rêve. But the reality of wakeful life set in even before the economic crisis of late 2008. Christie and I engaged in a concerted effort to see if we could make the dream come true. All of our advisors, and we had many, and some are in this room, supportive as they were of our project for the Institute for the History of Women Philosophers, cautioned us that we simply did not have the level of seed money that would be needed to purchase a property and a building let alone an endowment that could secure small fellowships. And I, like Christine, despaired of this state of affairs for a very long time until I remembered Christine de Pizan. Christine's city was not made of bricks and mortar. It was built with philosophical arguments and a revisionist history. And the inhabitants of the city were not people who physically lived in a particular locale. Analogously, it seems to me that our Institute for the Study of Women Philosophers does not require grounds or a building or a dog or a cat, although all of these are desirable and lovely indeed. Insofar as those of us committed to this project continue to share with each other our scholarship to critically evaluate each other's work, to help to advise each other's students, and to aid in whatever ways we can the future progress of the history of women philosophers. For all intents and purposes, the Institute is up and running. It's here. We've done it. And I am deeply grateful and proud to be a part of this Institute, which has been to my mind, a paradigm of what collaborative work in philosophy can accomplish. These closing remarks to the conference are warmly and enthusiastically dedicated to the women and the men who have participated in and supported this work. And it's also dedicated to those future scholars who will continue the work on the history of women philosophers.